In our practice, classification of employees is quite possibly one of the most challenging tasks an employer has to tackle. And it is also a place where there's the greatest liability. And we anticipate going into the Biden administration that this will continue to be the case, that there will be a continuing push to make sure that more employees get more rights to overtime compensation, higher compensation under the salary basis test, and to move away from independent contractors. So now is the time, if you don't have a process to classify employees that's sound and legally compliant, it's time to put that process in place. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the first episode of our series on risk prevention strategies. In this episode, Nicola Tala and Matt Feinberg partners in Polaro Maza's Labor and Employment and Litigation and Dispute Resolution Groups, sit down to discuss common employer missteps in application of the FLSA, best practices for FLSA compliance, and how to prepare if an audit or litigation arises. The Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA, establishes federal minimum wage, overtime pay, and record-keeping requirements. And administration of the FLSA can be complex for employers, with the consequences of violation leading to stiff penalties. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon and welcome to Risk Prevention Strategies, Avoiding Costly FLSA Missteps. My name is Nicole Atala. I chair the Employment Practice Group, Labor and Employment Practice Group at Polaro Mazza. And really, our goal here today is to give you some high-level pointers about when the Fair Labor Standards Act can really expose companies to risk. My practice at Polaro Mazza is to counsel clients in all sorts of matters, including Title VII and wage and hour issues. That includes anything from wrongful termination to should I pay or do I have to pay somebody the day I terminate them or on the next payroll, those kinds of things. Our goal is obviously to help clients resolve questions and concerns as quickly as possible. And I am here with Matt. Matt, I'll let you introduce yourself. All right. Hi, everybody. My name is Matt Feinberg, and I am the chair of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group at Polara Mazza. My job comes into play most of the time when something has gone wrong. An employee has filed a lawsuit or has made a claim with the Department of Labor or something along those lines. But we counsel clients routinely on the application of the Fair Labor Standards Act and how to make sure you continue to be in compliance. We also counsel on emerging trends in employment, such as the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, which has some some wage and hour implications. So Nicole helps do a lot of the prevention, and I help do a lot of the cleanup once something has gone wrong. And a little bit more about Polaro Mazza itself. We are a business law firm, a full-service law firm to our clients. We are generally a strategic partner to government contractors. We also serve commercial businesses all across the United States. I like to refer to ourselves as a multi-jurisdictional practice for employers that have employees or work 
in any of the 50 states and abroad. We do, as you can see from our laundry list here, a lot of work across the United States and abroad for our clients. What are we trying to do here today? Our objectives are to review common compliance pitfalls in the Fair Labor Standards Act. So what do we see broadly in our practices that gets our clients into trouble? We want you to see those pitfalls before you get to them so that we can avoid them or maneuver them with minimal liability. We're going to discuss risk mitigation possibilities. So to give you some thoughts about how to maneuver these pitfalls and really to provide you some tools. It's all about having the tools in your toolkit to navigate challenges in business, which we are going to have when we have employees. So the idea is that we can spot them and deal with them. So let's dive in a little bit. The first pitfall we really see is that employers need to have a process to classify employees. And what do we mean by that? Well, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, someone is generally considered hourly unless they meet certain criteria, in which case they can then become salaried or exempt. A lot of times, particularly in government contracting, we will come across employees that have worked for a prior contractor or in the job that they're in are used to being exempt. And so we make an assumption that they should continue to be exempt, or they make a salary that seems high enough to be exempt. And so instead of going through a process to really look at whether a person or job position should be exempt or non-exempt, assumptions are made. And once we assume how somebody is classified, that can get us into trouble because we're not really going through the test that's required in order to properly classify someone as exempt or non-exempt. The job duties test to make somebody exempt salaried under those administrative professional and executive exemptions, which are some of the most common exemptions to take advantage of. There are, there are a number of them, right? There are computer professional exemptions, which are all, also very common. Some exemptions that are a little bit more rare, for example, people that are working in freight and shipping, and there's a laundry list of classifications under the Fair Labor Standards Act that have different types of exemptions. But the most common that we run into that we have challenges with are that administrative, professional, and executive, particularly in the administrative exemption. And in the past, it seems like as long as somebody was making over the salary threshold and they seem to be performing some administrative function, employers would move them into this administrative exemption. And in the Obama years, there was really if you followed the increase in the salary basis test in the Obama administration, there was really an attack on the administrative exemption and what it takes to really have independent discretion and judgment and also meet that salary basis test, which has its quirks. So our advice is always that you should have a classification process with each position and be consistent in that process. We want to know when you talk to us or call us about an issue or a Department of Labor audit that you've, or someone on your team, as early as the bid stage, has really thought about whether a position should be exempt or non-exempt and has gone through the test. We also like to see employers keep records of their rationale so that we can demonstrate a good faith attempt and we can use that rationale in order to look at whether those job duties have changed over time or evolved as jobs tend to do. We also want to be very careful with independent contractor designation. And this is where we'll touch on state law in a little bit, but this is also where state law really comes into play. 
because there's an independent contractor test. And it really makes it really is incumbent upon employers to make sure that if somebody either requests to be an independent contractor or a company desires to make a person an independent contractor, that you understand what that test is. You know, are they operating with your tools? It's a multi-factor test. So are they operating with your tools? Are they working 40 hours a week for you? Do they have other clients? Are they incorporated? And state laws really matter here because states have taken a keen eye to ensuring that it's more difficult to have independent contractors because once somebody's an independent contractor, they lose rights to some advantages under wage and hour law, workers' compensation, and a lot of employee benefits. In our practice, classification of employees is quite possibly one of the most challenging tasks an employer has to tackle. And it is also a place where there's the greatest liability. And we anticipate going into the Biden administration that this will continue to be the case, that there will be a continuing push to make sure that more employees get more rights to overtime compensation, higher compensation under the salary basis test, and to move away from independent contractors. So now is the time, if you don't have a process to classify employees that's sound, and legally compliant, it's time to put that process in place. So getting into state and local law, as Nicole stated, the state and local laws are some of the most important laws that you can comply with or run into as an employer. So I think a lot of people probably know that the federal minimum wage is $7.25. It's been that way for more than a decade. I think the last time it changed was 2009. But different states, cities, counties, or other municipalities have their own minimum wage rate, and they change much more often than the federal rate, sometimes by drastic amount, depending on whether Democrats or Republicans are in power in a given state or municipality. They also change at different times of the year. So you can't assume that the minimum wage rate is going to change on January 1st of every year. Sometimes it's July 1st, or it could go on different dates based on when a legislature is in session. So it's very important to stay up on an individual state's employment laws when they take effect and how they're changing over time. Generally, whatever the most favorable rule that would apply to the employee is, that's going to apply to the worker. So if a worker qualifies as an employee under a state minimum wage law, that is what will apply. You can't rely on the federal rate. In addition, you need to consider that the worker may be subject to a rate in another state. For instance, your corporate office may be in Virginia, but an employee is working from a Maryland client site or remotely from their home in Maryland. Those individuals may, and in some cases are likely, entitled to Maryland's minimum wage, although there are some exceptions. And so that can be a particular pitfall for employers that have multi-state practices or that are allowing all of their employees to work remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. And particularly, it's the case where you are a border city or a border county where some of your employees may live and or work in another state. The state-specific analysis is also required for issues like overtime exemptions. Some states have different tests or different qualifiers for exemptions. Some states have made exemptions more restrictive 
And because there's a federal law that talks about exemption, that generally applies to a Fair Labor Standards Act claim. But there are also state wage and hour claims that apply. For instance, in Maryland, it would be a claim under the Maryland Wage Payment and Collection Act. And the exemption would apply for the Maryland Wage Payment and Collection Act would be analyzed under Maryland law. And you always need to consider other state-specific laws about things like meal or rest breaks, clock-in and clock-out procedures, and other specific requirements. For instance, are you required to pay individuals for time prepping for their shift? Those are all state-specific regulations. Now, some of them apply on the federal level too, but there are state-specific decisions and regulations and Department of Labor, whatever the State Department of Labor is, opinions that are going to explain how an employer should comply with those requirements. And so it's very important to pay attention to those and think about how it affects your employee and workforce in order to comply not only with the Fair Labor Standards Act, but also the state wage and hour laws that often have even more impactful penalties for noncompliance. All right. So another really important component of this is to make sure that you review your policies and practices for FLSA compliance on a regular basis. So one thing that my practice does quite often is we do legal reviews of handbooks and policies. And the reason that that's important is because even if you get the classification correct, and you think you're complying with state laws the way that you should be complying with state laws, once you really dive into the way that a company is applying different rules, those can have implications for on the Fair Labor Standards Act. And whether or not you can lose an exemption under state law, if you lose the exemption, then you might owe somebody a lot of overtime. Where this kind of can get really complicated is that Policies that don't appear to have anything at all to do with the FLSA can have a really big impact on legal components of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So let me give you some examples of that. Overtime. So one of my pet peeves is when I see an overtime policy that says something like, we will not pay overtime if not approved in advance. Well, that's a really intense factual inquiry. We certainly understand why employers want to make sure employees understand that they cannot work overtime unless it's approved. Overtime is really expensive. We get it. The problem is that the moment a plaintiff's attorney or the Department of Labor sees a policy that says we don't pay overtime, and the allegation is that you told employees, even if they were working overtime, or a supervisor told employees, even if they worked overtime, they couldn't record it because the client's not going to pay for the overtime, so you don't get overtime, or having language like we only pay for approved hours worked. Those types of words can really have a big impact on a claim. They don't help us when we're trying to make an argument against the fact that somebody worked overtime without our knowledge at all. You know, they were at home doing work that we didn't authorize to do. If you have allegations that a supervisor even a client sometimes, or your policies said, we don't pay overtime, or we only pay for certain hours worked. So you want to be very careful about how you word overtime and stay away from those kinds of absolute words and phrases that indicate that it won't be paid. It might be that if somebody works unauthorized overtime, 
but there was a reason to know that the overtime was being worked, that you'll have to pay it, but you can discipline that employee for not complying with company policy. So the remedy is often not to deny payment to an employee, but to discipline an employee and make sure that they understand going forward that they are not to incur the overtime prior to getting approval. Another common issue is deductions from pay. For example, military leave or site closure. Particularly when we're talking about exempt employees, remember they have to be paid the same salary for a work week or pay period, every single work week or pay period, regardless of the hours worked. Now you can use PTO time in many cases to have them make up for partial day absences and things like that. But when it comes to military leave, you cannot make an exempt employee take PTO for, say, the first part of a week. So if they go on military leave on Wednesday, you still have to pay them for the full work week minus their military pay. You can't make them use their PTO time. And so what we often see is that employers will deduct for that military leave portion or not pay the full salary minus any military pay for that given week. And then it looks like the employee is hourly for purposes of those weeks, and you can lose the exemption across the board. The same goes for site closure. So think about the weather that we've had in the last few weeks, although I will say that it's beautiful here today, but it has been quite cold and snowy across the United States. And when you have site closures that are not the fault of the exempt employee, those are days that have to be paid to that employee. Now, you could require that the employee use their PTO time if you would like, but they have to be paid, whether it's through PTO or their normal salary. That is different and distinguishable in situations where an employee said, you know, I live up in the mountains and the roads are really bad. So even though the site is open, I'm going to stay home from work. That can be a personal day absence that can be deducted from pay for exempt employees. But remember, we have very limited, limited reasons that an employee's pay can be deducted if they're exempt. So it has to really be full day absences for personal reasons, sickness for full days if they're out of sick leave or that you have an approved time off policy, you know, partial days at the beginning and end of a work week or when they start employment or end employment, but and full week absences. But there are very, very few reasons that you can deduct from pay. We don't want folks looking like they're paid by the hour because they lose their exemption and then they're entitled to overtime pay, which can result in significant liability. Another common thing that we see in policies and practices is compensation on termination. Your handbook and your state law may allow you to, for example, not pay somebody vacation time. And so you might have a policy in a state that allows it, like Virginia, for example, that says, you know, if your policy says that you are not going to pay out PTO time, you'll have to pay it out. That's totally fine. But what happens when somebody has a negative leave balance? So you've let an exempt employee go into the negative on their leave and you have an agreement, you have a deduction authorization from them that says that if they go into the negative, you can deduct their pay. But the FLSA does not allow you to take that deduction from pay because you destroy the exemption if you do that. And why is that? 
Well, because when they took that PTO, you have to think back to at the time that they took that PTO. Let's just say they took four hours on a Thursday afternoon, way back, you know, a couple months ago, and have really just not been able to accrue enough leave in their PTO bank to make up those hours. So you've essentially paid them for four hours. They've gone into the negative. And now you want to deduct that pay at the end of their employment term. You have now essentially deducted them for a partial day work. That is problematic under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So we are really looking for things when we're looking at policies like, is there a negative leave balance policy? Is there an an issue with uniforms under the Fair Labor Standards Act and how those uniforms are issued, maintained? The Fair Labor Standards Act has a myriad of policies and practices. Jury duty is another one. It's a lot like military leave in that regard. So we're really looking at all of your policies. Maybe it doesn't appear that it's related directly to the Fair Labor Standards Act, but they have implications on the Fair Labor Standards Act, particularly in terms of wage payment for hourly workers and exemptions for those exempt classifications. While you were talking, it brought up one thing to my mind about having the classification correct. So it's one thing to have the classification correct at the time you hire an employee because your expectations of a position may be one thing. But in litigation or in a claim that occurs subsequent to the first day of work, the question that the court asks or the DLL investigator is what actually happened during the person's employment? So you may be correct on the classification at the time they were hired, but then there was some change in their employment due to any number of circumstances, COVID-19 perhaps, that resulted in that employee losing the exemption because ultimately the way they performed the job is as a non-exempt employee. And so we'll talk about this a little bit later about audits and doing periodic audits of your exemptions and wage practices to ensure compliance. But it's often a misunderstanding that as long as you made the classification decision correctly at the time the individual was hired or at the time the person was promoted to a specific position, then that decision is applicable for the life of the person's employment. And that's not the case. The other misconception that I've seen many times in my career is that when an employer or entity issues an independent contractor agreement, a contract essentially, to an independent contractor that sets forth the requirements of their position, a lot of employers believe that that automatically creates an independent contractor relationship. That's also not true. So pretty universally, courts have determined that the fact that the employer and the employee or independent contractor have given a specific name to the arrangement or the relationship or have a contract that sets specific expectations, that is not by itself controlling. What the court will look to is the actual day-to-day work that the employee or independent contractor was doing and determine whether or not that person was classified correctly over the course of their employment, not just because it was written into a contract. All right. So one of the other pitfalls is managing the hourly workforce. So often I get calls about well, can I just take, you know, this kind of hammer type action? And what when I really dive into the factual situation, it's really a management issue. 
liability for hourly workers is often preventable if managers are trained well and employees are are trained well to identify issues and bring them to managerial attention, right? And that's the hard part about having a business just in general, right? Is making sure that your management team has the skills and can, and time, frankly, everybody is stressed out and doesn't have the time to really check the timesheets the way they really should be checking the timesheets, you know, going through all of those managerial and supervisory duties that are more administrative in nature than getting the actual deliverable done. But it's very, very important. So, you know, that helps you kind of manage overtime hours and manage whether people are clocking in early or late, whether they're performing any work. Those are the kinds of issues that your managers and supervisors can really, really help you with. One of the other areas really is miscalculating the regular rate of overtime pay. It is not uncommon that I will see offer letters or handbook policies that say your overtime pay is one and one half times your rate of pay. Well, you missed the regular part. So there's a specific calculation about your regular rate of pay. And while it is often just the base hourly rate times one and a half, if there is other compensation that has been conferred on that employee during that work week, another computation needs to be made. Bonuses and other types of compensation, depending on the type, there are, again, a lot of facts that go into whether the regular rate of pay is impacted. But you really need your team to think about overtime in terms of the regular rate of overtime pay and not just one and one half times the base rate of pay. And then another thing that I really is really frustrating, I think, for accounting teams and for managers is that you have this discrepancy between pay periods, which unless you're working in construction or other industries that pay by the week, accountants and your finance people really like your pay periods not to be lined up with your work week for a lot of different accounting reasons. So you'll have some pay periods that might be 82 hours, some that are 84 instead of having the pay periods line up with your work week, or you have two work weeks in a pay period, not one work week in a pay period. Well, overtime is calculated based on the work week. So it's really important that you set your work week, you notify employees what your work week is. Is it Sunday to Saturday, Sunday to Monday? What is your work week? And you calculate overtime and time work based on that one week period, not the two-week period. So for hourly employees, you can't flex their time into the next week. You can't say, okay, well, you worked two hours of overtime this week, so I'm going to let you take two more hours off next week. You really can't do that with hourly employees. So you really have to be focused on how many hours in this work week did somebody work. The other issue is travel time. So travel time has certain rules. You have to take into consideration whether there, it was normal commuting time, whether it was normal time working. We often have clients call us and say, well, I'm not paying them to read a book on an airplane. Well, and then we have to say, okay, but was it during the employee's normal workday? Was it outside of the workday? Were they driving in a car and it took them 18 hours because they're afraid of flying? Well, then we have a little bit more flexibility in those situations than we would in other situations. So travel time is another area that can get you in trouble if you're not paying attention to the quirks in travel time regulations. And some employers will round 
the time. So for instance, clock in and clock out employees or log in, log out employees, often employers will round the clock in and clock out time to the nearest six minutes or 15 minutes, half an hour or hour. That's okay, generally speaking, but it's rife with potential mistakes and potential violations of the FLSA if you use this process. You want to ensure that you're using this process correctly. For rounding, the rounding process must be notified to the employer and to the employees in advance. The rounding process must be neutral. For instance, you can't always round in favor of the employer, which would amount to you just cutting off time from the employee's clock in and clock out time. And the rounding itself must be reasonable. For instance, you wouldn't be able to round to the nearest half hour or to the nearest hour. Department of Labor regulations generally permit rounding to the nearest five minutes or even up to 15 minutes, depending on the circumstances. But the rounding, when looked at over time, must adequately compensate the employee for all the hours worked over that period of time. So you're, generally speaking, the amount of times you're rounding an employee's time down need to be comparable to the times you're rounding the employee's time up so that the employee is ultimately receiving a very close approximation of the actual time that that employee worked. Again, we're talking about math here and circumstances that favor an employer may not be acceptable rounding. For instance, if you have a five-minute staff meeting every Monday morning where you require all employees to log in at 7.55 instead of 8 a.m., and then you round off that time every single week, that might not be a permissible rounding process. Another issue that comes up a lot is not paying for unauthorized hours work. So for instance, Nicole was talking earlier about company policies that may say, we don't pay overtime unless previously authorized. You can't do that. If the person works the overtime hours and there's a reason for the company to know those overtime hours were worked, then they must be paid for. One of the important questions here is whether the employer had noticed that the overtime hours were worked. And if they did, they need to pay for them. But like Nicole said, the penalty, so to speak, for an employer, employee violating a policy is discipline, not withholding their wages. Just to interject really quick on that one, the standard for had notice always seems to be a little bit contentious when we talk to some clients because they'll say, well, the supervisor didn't know. But then you dig in a little bit and you're like, well, nobody noticed that this person was sitting at their desk at six o'clock every night, every single week, even though they clocked out. And they were like, well, their timesheet said five. So why would the supervisor question that? Well, if you had folks on site, even if it wasn't their direct supervisor, and somebody's sitting there every day until five, or they're, you're chatting, you know, there's email traffic and they're chatting with people, and then that's notice, right? So sometimes we get this a little bit of like, well, how could it have been noticed? Like, how would we have known? And then you dig in a little bit and you're like, well, yeah, she was there late, you know? And so it's really important that if you, it's kind of like that old big adage, if you see something, say something. That's really what you're looking for. Just another example of that is I had a case years ago where an employee was actually all employees were not permitted to work overtime at all because the government customer did not permit it. 
and it would have eaten into a very small profit margin for the company. And so overtime was prohibited for all employees. And timesheets were filled out by all employees, and they matched what they were required to be paid. However, at the end of the year, the employer sent a Christmas card to all of its employees or a holiday card. And this employee received a card with a specific note from the CEO or the CFO that said, thank you for your hard work. You're the first person in in the morning and the last person to leave at the end of the day. And we really appreciate the extra hours you're putting in. So that person had filled out a time card that said that she never worked overtime. But the employer was held to have notice of the potential overtime hours because they had written this card that thanked them for putting in extra hours. And even though there is no testimony or evidence about what exactly those words meant, the court construed it as having noticed that the individual is working over 10 hours. So it's very important, not only that you are paying attention to what your workforce is doing, but also keeping track of it so that you can counsel employees who are working overtime if they're not approved and correct the problem or pay these individuals for the overtime hours that they're working. And then, you know, I always say, don't forget the other stuff. There are a ton of like weird odds and ends that we, that maybe don't come into play in your everyday work when it comes to the Fair Labor Standards Act. And one of the, the big ones in the last couple of years are lactation breaks and break room requirements. So back, if you go way back to the Obama years, the beginning of the Obama years and the Affordable Care Act, one of the components of that was to modify the Fair Labor Standards Act to require reasonable breaks for lactation and to have separate room requirements. So it wasn't really even on a lot of folks' radars, but it's really important and can have really, it has implications for your workforce at large, but it can really lead to some difficult questions and claims, particularly for government contractors that may not have their own space and can't just set up a room. And some of the complaints I get are things like, well, at the site that they work, they have to go, you know, across the entire base or installation in order to get to the lactation break, to the, get to the lactation room. You get there, you have to wait for somebody to be done, and then the employer is concerned about the break time. So then we get into what's a reasonable break time, which also kind of leads me as just kind of an aside. But generally speaking, any break that's less than 30 minutes is supposed to be paid. And so one of the questions I always get is, well, what about those people that are serial smoke breakers and they go out every 10 minutes? That goes back to that managing the hourly employees. You don't have to let people take a lot of an abnormal number of 10, 15 minute breaks throughout the day. That's a management issue. But you do have to allow reasonable breaks for lactation. And there has to be a separate room that's not a bathroom for women to express breast milk and to take those breaks. And and usually those types of situations we can work through, but it is frustrating, I think, for everyone involved, which kind of then raises the temperature level to get the issue resolved because it's a very emotional and frustrating factual situation often. The other thing is there are child labor restrictions. So a lot of my clients don't ever have to do this. They never hire somebody who's under the age of 18 or under the age of 16. This is also where state law comes into play. So if you're going to hire somebody generally who's under the age of 18, it is a good idea to take a look at the regulations in your state for child labor. States like Maryland, for example, require 
work permit for folks that are under the age of 16, I believe. Most states have different requirements regarding how, you know, during the school week, how much can somebody work? On the weekends, how much can somebody work? So this doesn't happen a lot with our clients, but every now and then we'll run across a situation where there's a high school, quote unquote, intern that's getting paid. So it's not really, we'll talk about interns in a second here. It's more of an employment situation than an intern situation. And in those situations, we have to comply with those child labor restrictions. So it's always a good idea to, if you're going to hire somebody who's under the age of 18, to take a look at that Fair Labor Standards Act, but particularly state law, because there are generally more requirements under state law to keep in mind. Family employment, interns, and volunteers. So there are exceptions to the rule, so to speak, for certain types of family members children or younger people that are working on farms and restaurants, things like that. There are exceptions for to the normal rules for certain types of family employment. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea. You know, if you are in government contracting, for example, we're not really getting into government contractor requirements, but you're not going to be able to hire your 17-year-old and not pay them on a government contract unless they fit into, for example, an intern exception. So, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. This is really just to give you some high-level issue spotting that you might want to just look up the rules before you assume whether somebody should get paid or shouldn't get paid. Interns are particularly hot topic, particularly not so much in the Trump administration. There have been some lawsuits, but it really became a hot topic in the Obama administration with interns suing employers and saying they weren't in bona fide internship programs. They should have been paid and they were not paid. That usually leads to overtime claims as well. And so one of the key questions is whether you really meet the test for interns. The primary test, there are a number of components of that test, but one of the primary tests is that the program is particularly fashioned for the education of the student involved, not to make your copies. So if all the person is doing is making copies, they're probably going to be an hourly employee, not an intern. But if they're making copies incidental to an educational program and there is a program in place, then you might have a bona fide intern program. I generally advise employers to stay away from volunteers because volunteers generally don't exist in the private sector. There are rules about when there can be a volunteer situation in a nonprofit or bona fide volunteer situation, but a volunteer isn't going to work if you are, say, starting up a business and you don't have the money to pay somebody. So if they just volunteer for you for, you know, a year, you'll make it up to them later. That's not going to fly. There might have to be some sort of bona fide ownership or, you know, other arrangements that you come up with, but uh, generally stay away from volunteers. And, you know, Matt is really our, our go-to on the tip credit situation. But if you have tipped employees, the main thing I wanted to get across to you and Matt can chime in as well is that you need to make sure you understand how the tip credit works and how it interplays with your other wage and hour components. Because if you calculate it wrong or you're not, you're really not understanding how that dovetails with your minimum wage rules, you can get in a lot of hot water under this particular piece of the regulation. Right. And, and just jumping in on that, there is a minimum wage 
no matter whether the employee is receiving tips. So you're required to pay an hourly wage of a certain amount. You're allowed when an employee regularly receives tips to make up the difference between the, the minimum wage that applies for the state in which the, let's say the restaurant is located, but they still need to reach an hourly rate. And when the employee works overtime, which happens frequently in the restaurant industry in many places, you still need to pay the overtime rate for that individual. So you have to pay attention to whether or not the tips they are earning are covering not only the regular hourly rate for the first 40 hours in a week, but also the overtime rate for anything beyond those first 40 hours. The most important thing about the tip credit, however, is keeping accurate details of the amount of hours that are worked, the amount of tips that are received, and the amount that is actually received by the employee. We won't go too far into the tip credit because I could talk about it all day with how complicated it is. But the tip credit is a a huge pitfall for companies in the hospitality industry, including hotels, bars, and restaurants. Those are some factors you definitely want to pay attention to. And Matt mentioned a little bit about the Families for Coronavirus Response Act. And if you are not familiar with it, it was one of the first relief bills that came out of Congress. And like it was effective of April last year. It was set to expire December 31st of this year. It was renewed under the legislation that passed in December. But by renewed, it was renewed with caveat, meaning that employers could take advantage of the amount of leave. It's essentially a tax credit, if you're not familiar with it yet. For employers under 500 employees, you could get a tax credit if you provided employees with up to 80 hours of leave for their own illness related to COVID-19 or a family member, or if they were home with kids. And then if they were home with kids, they could get up to 12 weeks of leave total. And the way that they fashioned this so quickly was because they tied in that leave to the Fair Labor Standards Act, that first 80 hours. And then the extension to that, if you had kids, was really tied in to the Family Medical Leave Act. And what we're seeing now is that when there are leave problems, that also means you have a Fair Labor Standards Act problem. So if somebody says, I was terminated in retaliation for taking sick relief, then all of the rules and regulations relating to the Fair Labor Standards Act is really what's used to enforce FICRA. So through March 31st of this year, participating is voluntary. But again, this is where state laws come into play. Colorado, Washington, and California, New York, all have, in a number of different states, all have leave additional leave programs relating to coronavirus. So we're trying to make sure that, you know, in those states, we comply with state and federal law. So you might be required under state law to actually extend and take, you could, in that case, take advantage of FICRA or choose to take advantage of FICRA. We really want to make sure that you understand that you need to administer that leave carefully and properly, not only because we don't want to get into trouble with the IRS for not having the appropriate certifications and proper reasons for taking the leave, but because if we say terminate somebody for not coming to work when they should have been offered that leave or they were inappropriately denied leave, that is going to result in FLSA remedies, which can be steep. 
Okay, so we've talked about the background and some of the important issues that you will face in HR or in an accounting office where you're trying to make sure that you're paying employees right. And I also mentioned that what you say at the beginning isn't necessarily what applies over the course of employment. So how do you mitigate your risk of a potential audit or claim, the audit likely coming from the Department of Labor or a State Department of Labor? And the claim, whether that be a claim filed through the Department of Labor itself on behalf of an individual employee or a lawsuit itself. So one of the key ways to mitigate your risk is to conduct periodic audits. And I generally recommend that they be done three times a year, but it also can be done twice a year, shortly after January 1st and shortly after whenever the employment laws turn over in your state. So if they turn over on July 1, then you'd want to do your audit very shortly after July 1 or potentially right before July 1. If it's October 1st or October 15th, you might want to schedule it around that time. So these periodic audits relate to basically any employment law that might apply. So like we talked about originally, classification. Is the individual actually performing in accordance with the classification they were given at the time they were hired or promoted. Wage payment, are you paying the proper minimum wage? Are you paying the appropriate overtime wage? Are individuals working overtime that are not being paid or they're not reporting it? Or are you paying, did someone get a bonus or a raise and you forgot to change their overtime rate because it doesn't happen very often? The other thing that might happen is that based on your workforce size, you may be subject to employment laws that you were not subject to six months prior. For instance, the FMLA only applies to employers of a certain size. You might have crossed that threshold and understanding what the threshold is and where your company falls on that threshold is very important. And you have to do that both at the state and the federal level, because some states have, they're generally not called FMLA, but they're called some sort of Family Medical Leave Act under state law. And they may have different requirements as far as size of the workforce is concerned that may have changed over time. If you are doing these periodic audits, you're going to see the problems before someone catches them and be able to go back. And if you need to make an adjustment to an employee's wage or give them back pay to cover a mistake that has been made, it's better to do that before the claim is filed because then you're talking about penalties, potentially interest, and attorney's fees if the person is represented by an attorney. It's also extremely important to ensure that your record keeping is adequate and up to date. So we talked about this a little bit in the tipped wage context, but It's very important to make sure that you have a start and stop time for each employee each day so that if in the unlikely or potentially likely event that an employee comes back later and claims they haven't been paid what they were supposed to, you have documentation that can justify why you paid them a certain amount of money. And this is important for a couple of reasons. First, when a lawsuit is filed under the Fair Labor Standards Act, there are two different statutes of limitations. There is an automatic two-year statute of limitations, which means that an employee can recover unpaid wages going back two years from the date they filed their lawsuit. But statute of limitations is extended to three years if the employer willfully violated the FLSA. And a willful violation 
is not what it sounds like. It's a much lower standard than that. What it means is that the employer had reason to know that the Fair Labor Standards Act applied and did not conform its conduct to match the FLSA. So it's a fairly low standard, but having a significant amount of recorded documentation that is periodically audited and evaluated to determine accuracy would go a long way to preventing the extended statute limitations from applying. The second reason it's very important to have record keeping is that in a Fair Labor Standards Act litigation, the employer has an independent duty to maintain accurate records. And if they can produce accurate records, then the burden shifts to the employee to put on evidence that there has been a violation of the FLSA. However, if the employee is able to suggest with reasonable certainty that the employer's records are either incomplete or inaccurate, the burden on the plaintiff is much lower. All they must show, the employee must show to obtain a potential judgment in an FLSA case, is that there is a reasonable estimate of hours that were worked but not paid for. And almost any plaintiff is going to be able to come up with a story that explains why they were paid less than they were supposed to be if the documentation isn't there to back it up. Of course, that doesn't mean they're going to win. The the employee has to be credible, but you wouldn't want to have to go to trial to determine whether an employee is credible or not. You also don't want to ignore when an employee makes a complaint and whether that is an appointment or you receive a demand letter from a lawyer or you receive an audit letter from the Department of Labor over a complaint filed by an employee, don't ignore those complaints because often that is foreshadowing to a future claim or future litigation. Very rarely are those types of claims resolved without some sort of demand for payment or a lawsuit down the road because the penalties under the Fair Labor Standards Act are significant and they're a huge incentive for plaintiffs to file lawsuits. If you receive a demand letter, we'll talk about some of the steps to do when you receive those complaints in a second, but always take them very seriously. And it is very important, not just because we're lawyers, but because these are such important statutes to comply with based on the penalties that are imposed, that you engage counsel to evaluate the specific claims that are being made by the employee and ensure that you have paid your employees correctly over the course of their employment. So what to do when an employee complaint comes in and how you will handle that with care? Like I said before, don't ignore those complaints because ultimately, the vast majority of employees who make a complaint are making it in good faith. They might be wrong about the fact or their understanding Maybe they think that they're non-exempt, but they really are exempt, or they don't understand the employment laws that apply to them. But when they make those complaints, if you can resolve it before it goes to the point where they've hired an attorney or they have filed a claim, you're more likely to catch other mistakes that may have occurred. And you may be able to not only preserve your relationship with an employee, but mitigate your risk moving forward. Nicole mentioned this earlier, but retaliation is impermissible. And retaliation is is a fairly broad term. And it applies not only in the FLSA, but in a lot of employment statutes. With regard to the FLSA, the employee must take what's called 
protected action. And that really has been, depending on where you are in the world, that has been construed broadly by a number of courts to basically mean any complaint made to a supervisor about compliance with the FLSA. So either paying the minimum wage correctly, paying for all hours worked, paying for overtime, things like that. You also might have it under the FFCRA, uh, Family First Coronavirus Response Act that Nicole was talking about. So what is retaliation? In this case, under the FLSA, it's taking any adverse employment action against an employee for taking protective action. When I talk about an adverse employment action, it could be a, a wide range of things. It would certainly apply to terminations or demotions. It could apply to a reduction in salary or benefits, a reduction in that person's bonus. It could go as far down as moving that person's desk to an undesirable place without talking to the employee first. One of the key issues that we will see in a retaliation case is that the action comes very close in time to the date of the complaint. And when you receive a complaint, if the first thing you do is say is, is handed over to, to a supervisor who immediately changes their desk or changes their hours or, or decides that they're not going to get a promotion or a bonus, that is a strong indicator of retaliation, even when there's another justifiable reason for that adverse employment action taking place. So what constitutes a bona fide claim under the FLSA? Frankly, that's a very broad question. When a claim is filed for amounts that are not paid or allegedly not paid, whether it's a straight time or it's an overtime issue or that it's hours not paid, that's going to turn on the issue, the specific issues of a case. Is this a person who has claiming that they worked 15 hours of overtime when there's no chance that they ever worked those hours, 15 hours of overtime a week? That's probably not a bona fide claim, but you need to take it just as seriously as someone who makes a claim, for instance, for clock in and clock out differentials. For instance, if you have a lot of security procedures that you have to go through to log into a system and the person isn't able to clock in until they've gone through all of those procedures, depending on how long that takes, that could be a claim for unpaid hours because they had to sit at their computer for 10 minutes at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, each day in order to clock in and clock out of the system if they're not being compensated for that time. So what a bona fide claim may be under the circumstances is very fact-specific. But it will depend entirely on the type of the claim and the facts that back it up. So how do you handle a serial complainer? You might have the same person walking into your office complaining about some employment practice every day or every other day. For instance, the lactation room is, you know, takes me 10 minutes to walk to, or my chair is squeaky. I can't, I can hear my office neighbor chewing on crunchy cereal every morning and it's driving me nuts. So by the end of the, the first few weeks of employment, you're already annoyed with this person because they come up with very trivial complaints day in and day out. Now, I'm not to say that, that a 10-minute walk to the lactation room is trivial, but it might be folded in with complaints about whether someone chews their cereal too loud. And then after you've gotten frustrated with the person the girl or boy who cried wolf, 
they make a claim that say, you know, I'm working three hours of overtime a week and I'm not getting paid for any of it. So can you look into that? And you've added it to the end of a long, long list of complaints. You can't do that, unfortunately. You have to investigate those legitimate complaints of employment statute violations. And that goes not only for the FLSA, but also for Title VII, if there are complaints of discrimination, or the Fair Pay Act, where they claim to be paid a lesser amount than a similarly situated colleague, or they make a complaint under the FMLA or another statute. You have to be able to wade through the things that you can ignore or pass off as everyday complaints and the things that are very, very serious. And that would be anything related to pay, anything related to discrimination, anything related to family medical leave or or family leave in general. What I often get is, I just want to fire this person because I'm tired of hearing their complaints. And then when you go through the complaints, you realize that they you know, maybe weaved in something that could be actionable. And then clients are frustrated that they have to investigate it. But it's going to be that thing, that one complaint that might have, maybe it's nothing, but we got to investigate it. And it is frustrating, but you've got to deal with that serial complainer just like you would any, any other person who you believe maybe has more of a bona fide complaint. And we've talked about this a couple of times document your investigation. If you have some documentation of interviews with other employees, a review of their hourly reports, a review of their pay, you're going to be in a much better position to handle that employee complaint without running into any future liability. Defending against claims, again, you want to engage counsel immediately because the most important thing is that you have someone outside your organization looking at your pay practices to make sure that you are following the specific requirements of the law. You want to make sure that you've assembled all of your documentation and witnesses early. So we've already told you to keep great documentation. Once this complaint comes in, immediately send all of the documentation you have and the witnesses who might have information over to your attorney or to the person handling the claim for you so that they can speak to those individuals and review that documentation. Keep in mind that we all think that we're going to remember the story months and months and months later, but we often forget because if it's not happening to us, it's not something we're going to keep front of mind. That will allow you to identify your trouble spots and weaknesses early and help you in determining whether this is a claim you want to defend or try and settle quickly. If you receive a DOL complaint, then you're going to want to make sure that you have counsel review all of the issues received from the Department of Labor. Generally speaking, the Department of Labor is going to push quite hard and may not be as as willing to settle. And so you want to make sure that you have adequate representation with the documentation and witnesses for a DOL complaint. For a Fair Labor Standards Act class and collective actions, that's when a single employee files a lawsuit on behalf of all other employees who are similarly situated. In these types of cases, We're talking about potentially having to give notice of this person's claim to every single person who fits within a specific class or collective definition. And we've seen class definitions such as all employees who receive straight time for overtime, all employees who work in such and such role between 2017 and 2020. Those types of cases, the courts will typically require the employer or the the plaintiff's counsel 
to give notice to all of those individuals and let them know that they may have a potential claim. At that point, they can opt into a class and, and participate in any future settlement. If an individual receives a notice of a potential class and opts into the litigation, again, you cannot take retaliatory action against them. You just have to let it go, even if that individual is clearly lying. And then you have to consider liquidated damages and attorney's fees. So under the Fair Labor Standards Act, if you fail to pay your an employee, let's say $100, that employee is not only entitled to that $100, but they're entitled to $100 in liquidated damages as well, if the court values the case in that way, plus their attorney's fees. And this is how a $100 mistake can turn into a $100,000 judgment, or sometimes more, depending on who the plaintiff's attorneys are. In an area like Washington, D.C., where Nicole and I practice, the hourly rates that can be approved for a Fair Labor Standards Act case can range anywhere from $250 to $1,000 an hour. And that adds up very quickly. State penalties may be even worse. For instance, D.C. on the state law level, even though it's not actually a state, the employee can receive up to four times the amount of unpaid wages plus attorney's fees. Maryland would be three times. And so these amounts, if it constitutes a violation of state D.C. law or Maryland law, might be even more significant. And the burden shifts to the employer to show in these types of cases that what they did was reasonable. And often the courts are going to construe that against the employer. So there's plenty more I could say about defending against claims. I'll hand it back over to Nicole, but thank you all so much for listening today. And I'll hand it over to Nicole to say goodbye. I just wanted to thank everybody. Lawyers can't do anything in under an hour, so we appreciate you sticking in there with us. We hope everybody has a great day. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Maza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.